This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, LLC, TLC. They are just doing an incredible job saving you money on your registration. Be sure to register your vehicles, airplanes, boats, street legal, side-by-sides, and trailers to your own Montana LLC, and you will pay $0 in sales tax. So go to LLCTLC.com for more information. All right. Thanks for joining the Collector Car Podcast again. This is all about the Hershey sale, RM Sotheby's Hershey sale, and I wanted another car specialist to join me. So welcome, Zach. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you, Greg? I'm doing good. You have been good. on this podcast before, and I'm thrilled that you agreed to be on it again. So uh, thanks for uh, putting up with me. Absolutely. We'll keep it short. Well, no, we won't. We'll keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted you on because you're an expert. Uh, we have Hershey coming up. There's some free, fun pre-war cars. And um, I just wanted your input on what you like about certain cars, you know, um, just to kind of give our listeners an overview of some of the offerings coming to Hershey. So are you up for that? I am. I'm ready. All right. You sound very excited, too. <laughs> <laughs> I am. It's one of my favorite sales of the year. Oh, good. Well, why is that? Yeah. Um. It's genuine, like everybody that collects cars is a genuine car person, but it's like these cars are a different breed in their own. They're cars you have to see in person or have somebody look at in person for you to like know that it's a good car. And when somebody comes to look at a car at Hershey, one of the best things is there's never a paint meter in sight. And because okay. I don't I don't own a paint meter. I have refused to buy one. <laughs> and so you don't like people are coming to see like, is this a good car? Like. Is it a driver car? Is it a show car? Does it start and run? Like, all right, cool. Like, I'm good with the car. Like, I want to buy it. It's almost, I don't know if it's simpler. I think it's just, it's simpler. I guess that's the best way to put it. It's definitely simpler for a buyer and for a seller. Maybe a little more old school, right? Yeah, definitely old school. And like a lot, like some of these cars, people know them already like they know who bought it they know who restored it they know who's like who owned it in 1975 and they remember the car then and they know it's a pure car or whatever it is like they're it's not a huge guessing game with these cars by any means oh awesome that sounds great i know there's a lot more automobilia than we typically have at a sale right isn't that kind of a fun part about it too yeah it definitely is because you get the old, old memorabilia, like the leather license plates, like the old Vanderbilt, uh, I forget, what do you call them? They're like flags, essential pennants. Oh, yeah, pendants. Yeah, pendants. Yeah. So, I don't know, there's a lot of old things like that that are still really collectible. They're cool things to hang in your office or your man cave or your house if your partner allows you to do that, which some do, I imagine, not mine. Um <laughs> So there's just a little bit of something for everybody at Hershey. Plus, it's the largest gathering of like old cars like this. So it's just a fun week all around. That's awesome. Yeah, and if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see that I have all sorts of automobilia behind me, including a fish tank. And if you look closely, there might be a fish floating upside down. Actually, mm -hmm. there's not. I take very good care of my fish. Mm -hmm. But Zach, over there, I, what I, one thing I do want to get from my office is, because my last name's Stanley, I want a Stanley brass 
dash thing, whatever. Because our no, like the the emblem off the grill. Yeah, like the lettering. Yeah, if you see yeah. one, buy one for me. Yeah, you? I oh. I I'll send you a link. I know where one's at. I think. Oh, cool. I think I'd there's a good chance one. it's even in Ohio. Oh, all right. So yeah. It'll be yeah. on here next week, hopefully. <laughs> well, we're we're going to start with two pieces of automobilia I thought was pretty interesting. The first one is a penny farthing bicycle. Now, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that the British translation of quarter penny or quarter dime because of the size of the wheels when you compare a quarter to a penny or something like that? You know, I don't know that. I grew up in Kansas, which is way far away from any <laughs> European people. So I don't know that. I like... People in Kansas, believe it or not, rode these. There was actually a kid at McPherson College. Um, He would ride a unicycle and also one of these around campus. Oh, that's awesome. That's the closest I got to him. So honestly, I don't I don't have an answer for your question on that. Well, we'll say the penny's correct because the name is Penny Farthing. So we'll say the other one's for a quarter, which is the dimensional size between the front. Maybe it looks like maybe a half dollar. Um, yeah, we had a guy growing up that he was a dentist when I was like five years old. He'd go riding mm-hmm. by on one of these. And uh, yeah, I don't know that I would ever try it at my advanced age, but, you know, maybe a young guy like you would. Yeah. And I know there's I think they even do races with these. Two. I don't know if it's a race or like kind of like a tour. It's up in the northeast, but they do still ride these like as a wow. fun thing. And I know there will be at least one guy at Hershey that's there every year that still actively rides one. He's young like me, but he still actively rides one. So maybe we'll have to get him to ride it across the block for us. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Well, I only have one other I wanted to pick. There were a lot of really cool airplanes, model airplanes. Mm -hmm. And I just picked this one because I thought it was very cool. It's a ROCAF North American P-40 Warhawk. Five to 10 grand is the price on this. Mm-hmm. Just really, really cool. These things must be pretty good size. Do you have any insights yeah. on, I mean, is this something that's in your real house or you just think they're kind of cool? I think they're cool because obviously you could hang a lot of these from your ceiling and your man cave or car collection where a real one takes up a lot more room and also is much harder to get a hold of, I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. It's not easy yeah. buying old warbirds from what I understand. Yes, I would agree with you. And this one's really cool. And I, I just brought it up because we have like 20 of these things or yeah. maybe even more, a ton of them. So I have a lot of pilots in my family. So I'm going to share a few of these with uh, with my nephew, who is going to be an Air Force pilot one day. Well, let, let's move on to the cars. And I want to start with the big cars just because, you know, everybody kind of wants to know what the big cars are coming to Hershey. Yep. Uh, this is a 1909 Rolls Royce, 4050 horsepower, Silver Ghost. And uh, just what you would think of from a beautiful car from the early 1900s. Uh, do you know much about this car? Have any opinions on um, this car? So this, like, these are a great, there's still an active buying group for these because there's tours that you can do with them. It's HCCCA eligible, the Horses Carriage Club, so you could do the tours with them. I think this one might even be an old farts tour eligible car too. Um, but this car came off of fresh restoration. So like paint's great, like chrome's great, like everything on the car. Like from what I can see in photos, I'm super excited to see it in person. Is just a really great car and it's priced super attractive too. Like most of the time these come out with like if they're this fresh and this nice, it's like a million bucks is what people want for them. And obviously we're under that and I think it's, a very attractive estimate that should garner a lot of bids in person once people see how good it is. 
Yes, and I didn't mention it before, but the estimate on this one is 800 to $1 million. You're right, it mm -hmm. is absolutely stunning as I go through it. And what a great touring car, because you could probably fit, what, six folks in there? Five yeah. or six. And uh, another great thing is the horsepower. You want horsepower when you do the old tours. Because you could do like an HCCCA tour with a Model T, like a brass Model T. Um, but you're not going to be like fast or you're not going to tackle hills very well. And with this kind of car, you can keep up with the big boys. You can climb hills. You can like really give it all it has. And I think that's one of the attractions I have to pre-1915 cars is the horsepower. Mm. I don't know, maybe that's like my Kansas roots growing up around muscle cars. That's why I'm attracted to that kind of horsepower rating. But when I see like 40, 50 horsepower more on a pre-15 car, I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, that might sound really weird for our listeners that are used to, you know, average cars having 300 horsepower now, right? But mm -hmm. back in the day, 40 to 50 was quite a bit, wasn't it? That's a lot of horsepower. Right, yeah. right. Awesome. All right, the next one is another big hitter for this auction. It's a 1934 mm -hmm. Auburn 12 Salon Cabriolet. Estimates 450 to 550. This yep. is a V12 car. Sounds pretty rare. What do you know about yeah. this car? So if I remember correctly, this is one of approximately five that's left in existence. And this car is pure too, like original chassis, original motor, original body, which with pre-war cars isn't always a guarantee because back in the day, like they were used cars. And if you blew up a motor in one Auburn you had, you pulled the other one out and swapped motors. And then things go several ways. It happens with Duesenbergs and a lot of pre-war cars so to find something like this that's pure is super difficult and like i think even for so this is a tw salon 12 cabriolet on the salon 12 speedsters i think there's only three pure like 100 percent pure ones left in mm -hmm. existence so like and they even made more of the salon 12 speedsters than they did the cabriolets so this car is like super rare it's super rare and a 12 cylinder auburn they run like silk when they're dialed in. It's an absolutely phenomenal car to drive. And my favorite part of this car is the Woodlight headlights. Yes, I've always, those are really cool. I've always been obsessed with those ever since I like started learning about Jordans, which were made in Ohio. And the Jordan Speedway Ace had Woodlights on it. And I think they're super attractive. Not everybody's flavor, but I think it adds the right era to the car that it needs. Yeah, so for those that are not watching on YouTube where they can take a look at this picture and see what these things look like. They're, I don't want to say they're oval, like vertical oval, but that's kind of where you got to start, yeah. right? And then they kind of come to a little bit of a point, not a point, but definitely tapered towards the bottom. So it's definitely a yep. different looking type of headlight, correct? Yeah. And they're super hard to find. They're, they came on a lot of different cars and they're expensive if you want to buy a set of them these days. Like I think I just saw a set get listed. They were okay. They were like, I think it was eight grand, six or eight grand, but I've seen them listed as much as 25 grand for a set of those headlights. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to hit some of the garage sales near me, see if I can make Yeah, if you see car. some wood lights and they're cheap, you should buy them. <laughs> awesome. Well, before we go into the next group of cars, because I know quite a few of these, uh, you're the consigning specialist, and I noticed quite a few were no reserve. Mm -hmm. And I wanted your thoughts on no reserve, because I just did a no reserve episode last week or the week before where I took okay. all five auction houses from Monterey, 
the hammer price folks were nice to give me the database and I crunched the numbers and it really seemed like in a lot of situations, no reserve performed quite a bit better than cars that had a reserve. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking to a client and you're saying, hey, you know what? I think the best strategic way to sell these cars would be to sell them at no reserve. How does that conversation go? And what are some of the points that you try to make uh, to your clients? Um, the conversation, it's all based on the client. Like if you're getting a first time seller to a sale, it seems like a scary thing to offer something up at no reserve and you don't know what the final selling price is going to be. Like, obviously we never know, but you don't have that layer of protection that a reserve um, gives you to where if we don't meet that or if we get close, they can change their mind and lift the reserve. But like there's that minimum threshold that they can use as a blanket of security. Um, so it really depends client to client. Usually clients that have sold cars at auction before understand the risk and reward of selling a car no reserve, which the risk is it could sell for under your expectations or our expectations as an auction house. That's definitely the biggest risk. So you're taking the highest bid on the car that day, regardless of where it stops. But the big reward is there's no stopping where the car could sell like any card auction, like it could go above estimate, like we saw with some of our no reserve cars at Monterey this year, they can absolutely blow by those estimates. And what a no reserve car gets you at auction is bidders. Like everybody knows that that car is selling regardless of where the final price is. And so you have people that go there looking for a steal. You have people that are going there to buy it for whatever market price it is if it's 50 to 60 grand like they're like yeah i agree it's 50 to 60 grand i'll pay 50 for it and then you get bidders that are like i don't care what it goes for i just want the car and so those bidders you bring through that process help push that car to where the final bid is going to be and hopefully it's higher than what everybody was expecting but you have to have that engagement and that's where no reserve really helps obviously with every car it's not feasible to get no reserve. Um, and that's why we price things where they should be in order to get people interacting with us. Yeah. Okay. Well, I brought that up because I just had one car last year, Hershey, and it was basically the car we're looking at right now is a, mm -hmm. yours is a 1935 Ford model 48 deluxe Phaeton. Mine was, I think a 36. Uh, and you know, I priced the car out. It was a spectacular example. The, I think it was 45 to 55 grand hammered right mm -hmm. at 50, 50,000, right in the middle. Yep. And that was a no reserve car last year. And it seems like cars like this, which are kind of, I don't want to say a commodity, but they're ones that you see trade hands enough. You can pretty yep. much nail it down, right? Yeah, like 30s, Fords, like it's all really easy. Well, I say easy. It seems easy to put a price on them because it's all condition. Like there's so many that trade hands. If it's a Roadster, like a 36 Roadster, if it's a sedan, if it's a coupe, if it's a Phaeton like this, there's so many comparable examples that have sold or that are for sale. And so it really comes down to condition history of the car. Like, oh, maybe it's not like AACA winning car. So maybe it's not 50, 60 grand. Like, I think, was your car last year the one that was restored by Babinski? Yeah. 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 So like that was like, I remember that car now. Like that car was killer. Like people usually don't restore the People usually don't take Babinski like at thirties Ford. Like he's known for like doing the big full classics and Mercedes and everything like that for Pebble Beach. And so to find one with that kind of pedigree is absolutely amazing. And if you want the best one in the world, like 
that's where you're going to have to pay that price for it. But if you want another car that I just want to go to a cars and coffee, I just want to do ice cream during the summer or year round in Florida, like I can do like, here's an example. That's only, you know, like 30 grand, whatever it may be, or 25 grand. Like it's super appealing to a wide audience of buyers. And they're a simple car when you get down to it too. Flathead V8 with a single carburetor, it doesn't get much simpler than that. And I, for some reason, I just love this car. I just love the thought of a Phaeton four-door. You got, the windows are not permanent, right? That's the Phaeton. You got to right. have the inserts and, you know, just a big four-door convertible that you can, Phaeton, that you can take your family, you know, and cruise around the block. I just think yeah. that's super, super cool. Oh, it is. It's very open touring-minded. And to get an earlier bigger car that's a phaeton you pay a big premium for it if it's a packard or something like that so this is an easy way into the old card world or to add another one to your old car collection and not for a heck of a lot of money i don't think yeah i would agree with you on that all right our next one's a 1937 buick series 80 roadmaster limousine by brewster mm-hmm. now i picked this one just because it is one of your classic big pre-war cars Um, I was surprised it said limousine just looking at it, but um, tell us about this car. Yeah, so this one, we actually sold this car back in 2020. Um, It was part of a large Buick collection out of Colorado, and my client bought it there at Auburn uh, Fall, and it's, it's an attractive Buick in that they didn't make very many of the Brewster, Brewster didn't make very many of these, so the coachwork on it, you'd have much more attractive fenders, um and with the town like the limousine style there's room for plenty of people to ride in it as well and it's a straight eight like it's an easy car to drive if, unless you're tall like me then it gets a little cramped in the front because the front seat doesn't adjust backwards um but it's just like that side profile it just has much more character much more design than your normal buick roadmasters that you're going to see on the road or at another aaca event if I remember correctly, I think this is a CCCA full classic. So um, that gets you eligible for tours or shows or whatever you want to do with that. So it has a lot of possibilities that you can do with the car. Yeah, that means a lot, right? And the value of the car is the usability of the car, right? Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, next, I'm really curious to get your opinion on 1948 Lincoln Continental Convertible. I'm Mm -hmm. interested because... The estimate is $45,000 to $55,000 offered without reserve. And I, I just feel like you've got a big V12 American yeah. full classic for fifty grand. And I, in my mind, these have been suppressed or depressed valuation-wise for five years now or so. Mm-hmm. Is this do – you, do you think this is a steal? Do you think this is right on the – I mean, obviously, you probably – it's right on the money. But should these be worth more, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to. I think there's room for them to be worth more. The problem is there's a lot that come to market. So, you know, your supply and demand problem with them, like you can always get one. It's not like, oh, like I haven't seen one come to market for two years. Like Mm -hmm. I got to have one. And everybody's thinking that too. Like they come up quite often because it was a mass produced car essentially. Um, So I think that's what kind of holds it back from reaching another tier in value. Like having the V12, the three on the tree, like convertible, the rear mounted spare, like it's a it's a sexy car. 
like when you get down to it and has the power to do it. You could drive this. Literally, you could probably drive this on a highway. I wouldn't in Florida because our highways are crazy. Um, but you could do it elsewhere, like in Ohio or the Midwest. Like it's a car you could actually go town to town in and enjoy. And the V12 in this, I, I drove this one around a little bit and it had just been rebuilt. Like it runs so smooth. And that's the beauty of these old cars. Like we take and all of our new cars run smooth, like my F-150 runs smooth. Yeah, it's like a fuel-injected brand-new motor. But, like, this is right. a huge, like, this is an old car that somebody actually took the time to dial in, to balance, to tune the carburetors, and make sure everything ran like it does. And I think that's a huge feat and adds to the attractability of this car. Right. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a beautiful car. I just Every time I see one trading for 50 grand, I'm like, man, that seems like a steal. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next is, yeah. Next is a big wing car from the 50s, Mm -hmm. 1959 DeSoto Adventure Sportsman Coupe, 45 to 55 grand. Again, another no reserve car. Stunning black with the gold accents. Yeah. Tell us about this car. I've always loved these when I've seen them at uh, car shows. I'm always drawn to them, the big, you know, the fins and everything. Oh, yeah. The fin era is phenomenal. It's such a, I know it's a pinnacle time in the design of American cars. Big land yachts, giant fins, like everything in the interior back in the day that you think would kill you. Like if you got in a front end collision, um, pointy stuff everywhere. Um, Like the swivel seats in this, like, do you really need it? No, but it was cool back in the day, made it easier to get in and out of the car. You have the push button transmission, which is, I don't know, that's back in today with even some new cars. Like back then it was an amenity, like everything had either a manual or an automatic on the column. So having a push button transmission was a luxury. In this car with your big block Chrysler powered engine, AC, like this is a luxury car from the day. In the classic colors of black and gold is DeSoto's look best in, you get the big fins. Like it's a truly great car um that anybody would look good in and it has the power to get you down the road also and it has six brake lights which is crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> now styling the, styling. Yes, styling yeah now the uh the swivel seat that turns mm-hmm. right as you open the yeah. door it yep. turns towards you which is really really sweet very very yeah, cool. it is it is it's i don't think you can do that with new cars it probably goes against some like safety regulations you have on cars (laughs) might eject you as you open the door to get out yeah yeah well sometimes you need to do that (laughs) (laughs) now the next one again i'm really interested about i love c1 corvettes i don't really fit Mm -hmm. in them that well i'm sure you're probably the same how tall you are yeah um but i'm always curious because this the starting in the 58 we have a 58 fuely Corvette 110 mm-hmm. to 130 again no reserve. Um I always like the quad headlamps which is what this car is a 58. 58 is known for having the extra chrome on the back. Some people like the 59 and 60s a little more cuz has a little less mm-hmm. chrome. And then I've also talked to folks that really like the 57 cuz that was a single headlight. Yeah. You know the V8 the classic. What did, where do you fall when it comes to Corvettes first gen? Uh, so first gen, I would have to go with 57 also. I like the the sleek look of a single headlight car. Mm-hmm. Like quad headlights really aren't my thing. I don't know why, but I really like the 57. Like you still get the V8, like everything like that. I just like that simplistic look a little bit more. I'm a simple man. <laughs> See, I like the chrome and the bling and the coves and all that. So I'm probably more of a 58 guy. 
Yeah. I, you know, I've appreciated the 57s a little more, but tell us about this car. Have you driven this car? Um, I only drove that one a little bit because I think that was at the start of our whole shoot of all these cars up there. Um, but like the fuel injection unit had been rebuilt, so it fires right up. When those are dialed in, they're great to drive. Like you get the four speed with the horsepower. Um, for me, it's not comfortable at six four, like how tall I am to drive it. But these cars have that American power from the V8, the reliability, the smooth shifting of the four speed. You can handle pretty well in it. Like it's not like today's cars or some European cars from the period, but for something that Americans made in 58, it's a phenomenal example. Yeah, and this is such a classic color combo. It's red, red yeah. interior with the white coves. First thing I would do is buy some new white wall tires. <laughs> yeah, they just need some scrubbing. That's yeah, all. Yeah, you can scrub that's that. That's what bleach white's for. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I think I'm just picking the cars I wish were in my garage because as I look at this, the next car is definitely one I want in my garage. 1958 yeah. Chrysler 300D convertible. And we have a, I think also a 300F in this sale, 80 to yeah. 100 grand, no reserve, one, one of 191 examples built, the most expensive Chrysler in 1958, black with tan interior. Tell us about this beauty. I mean, this is a car you make a statement with, like dual quads. Hemi powered. You have the Chrysler design with the big fins. You have the convertible top. You have the bench seat. You have the push button transmission. Like this car has everything that exuded luxury from Chrysler in the late 50s, like the DeSoto did. And this is another great example, like especially being a convertible from the factory, because through time, like I don't know, somebody rolled one, they lopped the roof off. Like, there's always cars out there that aren't pure, like in any era. And this one with is a good original convertible from the factory that's been restored and maintained and, like, drives well. Um, it's a phenomenal car. It really is. Yeah, this thing is absolutely gorgeous. Now, could I fit that in my garage? Do they fit yeah. in standard garages nowadays? I think if you sold your GTO, you could fit this in there. <laughs> the GTO barely fits. <laughs> I must say. Yeah, so you have to sell it. I, oh, I got to sell it. Barely. Yeah, I've already told you that. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be happy to take it off my hands, wouldn't you? Yeah, uh, I would for a discount. For a discount, sure. Yep. All right, next is another really cool car I'm a little bit familiar with because I have a client yeah. that has three of these. 57 three of Cadillac. Yeah, Eldorado Brome. Now, the estimate on this is 90 to 120, and mm -hmm. this is the four-door, like kind of, I know, suicide door, but French doors yep. is kind of the way it opens. Uh, they all had the stainless steel roof. Tell us mm -hmm. about this beauty. This is Cadillac's late 50s luxury automobile. I think my favorite part about these is the stainless roof and then um, the vanity kits that came with these. Obviously, the vanity kits are like, super hard to get a hold of and this one has a, a set that features both original things and reproduction things i'm not sure which are real and which are reproduction i haven't seen the car in like i think we sold it six years ago um, but you had like your perfume dispensers like your mirrors and all these cool things that were like designed towards the females that would be riding in the car or driving the car and so cadillac really targeted that audience with some of their things and so these cars were luxury. I think if I remember correct, you could even have like memory seats in these. I don't know if they, mm. I've seen one with electric memory seats that actually worked. 
Um, and originally they came on air ride suspension, which obviously that stuff is hard to maintain today if it has an issue and getting parts is getting more difficult. And this car has been converted over to coilovers, so you don't have to worry about that at all. You maintain the same ride height. You don't have to worry about leaving for the summer or the winter and coming back and seeing it squatting on the ground. Like it'll maintain that ride height. So that's a nice part that I like. Some people don't like it because it's not pure. Um, but from a usability standpoint and maintenance standpoint, it's a very positive aspect to this car. Yeah, and this one also had custom hubcaps. They're all custom to the brome and chrome mm-hmm. and just really beautiful and di- and different. And this is a car I, I've been calling like kind of a pinnacle car. Kind of not, not that it's recession-proof, but I think mm-hmm. it will outpace the trends from a valuation standpoint just because it was such a special car in yep. the day. Would you agree with that? I would. Like anything that was special back then and not necessarily built to be as special as it is today will maintain and always have somebody that wants that car. Like they didn't build, I forget the production numbers on these. It's very, it's fairly small. Like they didn't purposely do that to like create value in the future. Like most of these people, they are like, oh, we just built a few hundred of these. And like now today we're like, oh, there's only 200 of certain cars left. Like the value's super high. Like they didn't purposely do that, but it's the benefit the cars have today is the manufacturer's limited production, maybe accidentally or on purpose back in the day that will help maintain these cars into the future and maintain their collectability. Yeah, this is one of 400 built for 57, just 704 for 57 and 58. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, in 58, the price point was like $13,500, which was at the time, I believe, the most expensive American car ever produced for that year. And if you're watching on YouTube, I've got it paused here with the French doors open so you can see the entire expanse. It's pretty cool because the hinges are so big on this car and so much chrome. Oh. It's a really, really cool car. Oh, like everything's shiny on this car. <laughs> <laughs> see, I love that. I love that. Yeah, everything's shiny. <laughs> All right, we got just two more. Um, the next one's a 1954 Hudson Italia by Touring, mm-hmm. two fifty to three hundred fifty thousand dollars. What the first of twenty five production examples uh, built and is based on a Hudson. Now, I picked this one because it's such a unique styling exercise, and it totally mm-hmm. reminds me of the dual Gias. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you kind of talk about a little bit of both of those? How you compare the two? Because I know the dual Gias, you know, they're another two hundred grand more expensive than this one. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? When to me, this is just as beautiful looking. Obviously, it's based on a Hudson, but give me your thoughts on this car and also as it relates to a dual Gia. Um, so this car is classic American powertrain with Italian coachwork, which we saw across a numerous numerous different cars. Like I think what would set this apart from a dual Kia? Dual Kia is on a Chrysler platform. You have probably more power, more ease of driving. And if you look at like a Chrysler, like a regular Chrysler from the same area as the Ghia, they obviously demand more than a Hudson of the same area. And I think that relates to not only the production numbers, but also maybe power that you have to drive the car that could be more attractive to somebody where a Hudson, like you have a straight A, like maybe not as much power as you would want. Like even this Italia, um, was in California early on in its life after it was done being a show car. And the owner pulled out 
the original eight and put in, I forget what other motor he put in, but he put in a motor that had more power because he was having trouble going up hills back in the day with this car. And so even back then, maybe for certain parts of the country, it wasn't as usable as people would like, maybe that you could get with a Chrysler product. And so I think that maybe long-term has an effect on the value of them. I think these are definitely more sexy, like much more curvature. I like yeah. the the coach, the touring coach work. Obviously, we saw touring on Ferraris and every other kind of European car. And so I think it's definitely more sporty, not as grand and luxurious as you would see a Ghia. Um, this is definitely more of a sport car. Right, right. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And it looks like it has kind of faux six exhaust tips coming out of the side, but it looks like yeah. those are probably... Are those for lighting or is it just uh, reflectors? What's on those? Yeah, uh, there's some lighting back there for sure. Yeah, yeah, very cool. You have to look. Are you coming to Hershey? You have to take it out for a spin, Greg. I wish I, I wasn't. Unfortunately, I'm not uh, making it out there. Unfortunately. Yeah, and like this car, the owner's dad bought it in 1980 and has a super interesting history file on it, like documentation from Hudson back in the day talking about the early release of this car, like the Italia, um, so much paperwork. And this one has like known history since new, which with American cars isn't always known because they were everyday cars. But this being such low production, such great history, like long-term ownership with the current family. I mean, that's 43 years right now. Um, invites a super great opportunity to pass it on to the next caretaker. Yeah, and I just flipped through some pictures and saw the really cool bucket seats, the way they're designed. I've yeah. never seen seats like that before. And then it doesn't have a back seat. It has like a bench or, you know, a tray table there, which is pretty cool. I did not realize that. Yeah, they didn't All have right. regulations then. It was yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> what more? One of my favorite cars, 1966 Mustang Hypo Fastback. So I tell us a about this one, Greg, since well, you're, you're the Mustang man. <laughs> so the estimate on this one is seventy-five dollars to $90,000, no reserve, mm -hmm. most desirable, highest performance Mustang for 1966. I have a Beater 65 in the garage, which I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you what's interesting about this car is that in 65, you could not get AC power steering or an automatic, whereas in 66, you could. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one's nice spec, you know, it's black. It's got the GT package with the red side stripes, red line tires got the styled steel wheels really really nice presentation uh pony interior which is super desirable the wood grain console uh it's got the rally pack which is an 8000 rpm versus the standard 6000 so really great package here i think it's priced right on yeah that's my opinion so what's your opinion zach i like the raven black i think it's super sleek on this car like you said the right red side stripes red line tires styled wheels gt package like four speed k code like i don't know what more you could ask out of a mustang fastback from 66 i mean you're only your next step up is going to like a, a shelby like gt350 like this is it, it's I don't, know, I don't know if it's peak I think it's probably like the best thing that you could get now since you're not ordering the car new. Um, since we don't have the luxury of doing that now, we have to buy what somebody else bought. And whoever bought this one new did a phenomenal job with picking the colors and picking a K code and a four speed. Like, I think you should trade your 65 in on this one, Greg. 
I I don't disagree with you. I don't. Mm -hmm. But then I, I would be scared to drive this with the black paint job. You know, the one I have, I can take it down a gravel road without having to worry about it. <laughs> I mean, if you own it, you can take it down a gravel road. Nobody's going to stop you. Well, that's true. That's true. Now, one thing that's <laughs> interesting, there's another Hypo, a convertible in the sale, yeah. and it's the uh, dark ivy green, which I absolutely love. And yeah. I noticed they both say they have numbers matching K-code engines, which is really rare because of the three production plants, I believe only one of the production plants actually put a VIN stamp on the engine block. So that is a very cool thing to have. It just adds value to the car. So Yeah, and I looked at both stamps. Stand, I looked at the fastback stamp last night. Jake got it for me since the car's in Canada. And then the 65 stamps in the history file. And they look nice. And it's amazing that they're still there. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I just flipped to uh, Arm Sotheby's homepage now. That tells us that this interview is over. Is there any other cars or any co other comments per uh, the Hershey auction? It's an auction that everybody should attend. Like Hershey's an event you should attend once in your life. It's a big hub for where we get all this energy for our hobby at. And we have a phenomenal lineup of cars from K-Code Mustangs to, you know, great brass things like early 1900 cars that you could do London to Brighton with. Like we have a 1903 um, example. It, there's and anything up through the early teens into the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and I think we even touched 70s this year um, with some low mileage Cadillacs. And so there's a little bit of everything for everyone and every tour you could imagine. You could participate with one of these cars on CCCA, HCCCA, AACA shows. There's so much potential in the cars that are there. And it's a hands-on auction where you get to see, smell, touch, hear all these cars do what they're supposed to do. And then we even have a barbecue on Tuesday night, which is everybody's favorite event. <laughs> nice. So it's funny you mentioned the 70s because I did have the Bicentennial uh, Cadillac in there because mm -hmm. I only made one of 200. And back when I sold one at Auburn a couple of years ago, of the 11 cars I had in the sale, I had more inquiries about that Bicentennial yeah. Cadillac than any other car and only one guy was a collector all the rest everyone else just had good memories from growing up and they wanted yeah. one to drive it so it's a connective car I remember that I thought you were at, you put way too high an estimate on that and then I was wrong I remember yeah. that one I questioned it but then you proved to be right so it's fine and I didn't oh, tell you okay. till three years later so it's fine it's fine it's fine you'll get over it I'm sure I'm already over it all right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Zach, Jack. I'm going to start calling you Jack now. Thank, thanks, Zach, for joining the Cut to Car podcast. As always, I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Anytime, Great, Great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.